Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Soft Tech Tech Podcast, where we chat with experts about interesting things that are happening in the industry. We talk a bit of shit and hopefully share some insights along the way. Today in the studio, we're lucky to have with us Chris Ball from Parktown Capital and Michael Stannard from Platform Investment Partners. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming. Cheers. Thanks Thank, for having us. Thank you for having us. Cheers. Cool. Um, so today we're going to unpack and deep dive into venture capital in South Africa and around the world, some of the mechanics, uh, the guests' journeys and what they're investing in. Um, but before we do that, the how, what, why, I wanted to jump out the gates with you know, the question, if there is one company in South Africa or somewhere on the planet that you could invest in right now, who would it be and why? Mike? Well, I think if you're going to ask me one company to invest in South Africa, I'd say our current portfolio. Otherwise, I'd be uh, having a mayor on this podcast. But uh, no, Jez, I, I always admired and it might be a lame answer, but I, it's definitely the one that's fixated in my mind is Amazon. Um, I think um, what they've built there kind of leans on all the core principles of what we're looking at, just using technology to streamline, automate, um, you know, be able to make an exponential organization. Um, and I just think they're going to go from strength to strength. So yeah, my, my answer is Amazon. Very cool. So even at this size, you think there's still a long way to go? Huh? Yeah. I mean, if you think about uh, global retail, which is what they're after, I mean, they don't own the vast majority of that market yet. So I just think they're going from strength to strength. You, barring maybe some incredibly tough uh, legislation or regulation on them, I think they're going to be able to extend that reach and just keep going because they built themselves to scale. Awesome, cool. And Chris, uh, who would it be from? Yeah, so um, thanks for reminding me about my own portfolio. Um, <laughs> I wasn't going to go that yet. Um, yeah, it's it kind of caught me off guard here, Jess, but the company that I've been following for a long time and I really like is Intersect. Um, they're a South African technology company based out of, based out of Stellenbosch. You know, they've come all the way from the great thesis of, you know, OTPs aren't the best way to have secure transactions. And they've scaled rapidly through South Africa and they're starting to scale rapidly around the world. Um, I really like it. They kind of get revenue per transaction basis and they scale along with their partners. Mm. So it's, it's a theme that I like uh, being in financial services and also really like their revenue model. Amazing. I think uh, they are, you know, one of a number of companies that have global leading technology, technology built in our backyard mm. that is better than what's been built anywhere in the world. Mm. And um, you won't see them on the pages of VentureBird. No, yeah. no, you won't. And I, I, spot on. I mean, we've got lots of South African companies that are leading in terms of engineering and technology, but it's you know, born out of this little 60 million person, person and country. Mm. Stan, before I jump off, I just had a question for you on the regulation. I mean, yeah. do you think Amazon's going to see the regulation coming and react before it actually gets regulated? Or do you think they're going to kind of sit on their heels like Facebook and Google have done and, and wait for the regulators to come after them? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not an expert on regulation, I must admit, but I, I would just imagine that they, they're so powerful, they're so important to the American economy at this stage. Like, I don't think anyone's going to get the jump on them. I'm sure Jeff Bezos is very central to all of those conversations. It would be hard to believe that they wouldn't include him. It would be foolish. I think he wields a great deal of power now. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it'll be, you know, as synergistic as possible for them. Um, but uh, it, it's kind of, you know, you're seeing regulation in China, obviously a very different place, but that's 
affecting Alibaba. So it's, I think it would be foolish to think that it can't have an impact on them, but yeah, I'm sure they'll be in the loop at least. And, and going on from that and regulation, I mean, what's the, what's the regulatory framework that uh, you and your companies operate with in South Africa in the venture capital landscape? Do you think it's easy? Do you think it's difficult? Um, could it be better? Yeah, I, to be honest, it hasn't touched our lives too much. And, you know, I think you'd need uh, Sean and Richard from our telecom side to, to understand. I think they're probably more affected by regulation in the PIP group. But from our side, um, no, I mean, I, I haven't been, we haven't been too impacted. Maybe it's just because of the sectors we're working on. And maybe, Chris, maybe talk a little bit about your journey into um venture capital and, and, and suppose tech investing in, in general and, and your background tech and, and kind of how do you find yourself looking at and being excited about tech businesses these days? Well, look, I think I got excited about tech before I really did, you know, understand much about it. Um, I was, how I got into it, you know, I was busy interviewing for jobs at most investment banks. I think I'd been interviewing for about three months and I had about six psychometric tests Obviously, something was wrong with me. Um, I then applied for a job online with Rocket Internet. And within two weeks, I had a job um, launching Lendico South Africa. And, and Rocket Internet, for those who don't know, um, maybe just a bit of background on that high level. Yeah, it's a fascinating business. Um, the founder, Ali Zamwa, did his master's at Harvard. He wrote his thesis on America's greatest startups and went back to Germany and copied Groupon ended selling it for a couple billion euros and then replicated that model globally, starting American startups all around the world. So for example, the, co the company that we launched in South Africa was Lendico, which was, uh, I'm going to say ripoff of Lending Club, which is a peer-to-peer -peer lending network. Um, and very much a typical venture model where lots of, lots of companies launch in lots of, lots of di districts and see which ones stick for the outweighted returns on those on those opportunities. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of people, you know, kind of the label them with the term clone factory, but in the startup space, they're some of the best executors in the world, right? Yeah, I mean, they've got all the institutional knowledge on how to execute. They hire some of the best people to to go into the industry. And they hired you, so, and you learned a lot there, and, and, and that the kind of experience. One of the best people. And yeah, yeah I mean, if, if, and the funniest story was I was the only person to wear a suit on the first day. So I was the person getting asked about all the lease agreements. This was a 24-year-old on his very first job. I even wore power red tie. Um, but as you can see, I've changed my okay. outfit. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. And so that experience kind of obviously seeing how that works, seeing the inside of there, and you've kind of leveraged that into... Yeah, so then I moved into the kind of investing world um, with Alpha Wealth, where I was part of their kind of family office, investing in private equity. Um, so I took those learnings from from that side and then moved into moved into the kind of parked on capital space and done venture and private equity work from there and always had a very keen pent on on technology investments. But at the same time, I've seen things go wrong um, where it's a lot easier to forecast cash flows in private equity companies than it is in venture companies. Okay, cool. And 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 then I mean, from your background, what was your kind of journey into this VC space and and where you sit at the moment? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, the prime prime uh, leader for me there was uh, Stu, our business partner. Um, I had been working as a management consultant and kind of not really in a vein that I wanted to and kind of wanted, wandered through my 20s a little bit, 
bit aimlessly, to be honest. And then Stu sat down with, with me one day and told me all about, uh, you know, abundance, the book. And the by, exponential technology. Yeah, the whole singularity side of things. And, and it, that was hugely exciting. I just think, um, you know, innovation and, and new breaking new boundaries, learning, all of that stuff is just, it captures your imagination. And I think it captured mine very quickly. I like the way of kind of, you know, the word disruption was used so much that it's now like a bit lame, to be mm -hmm. honest. But yeah. but actually it was really, it, it's spot on. You know, you're, you're trying to solve big problems with new innovations and, and that was very exciting. So when Stu kind of pitched uh, Paper Plane as it was back then, um, I was immediately on board and, and we jumped in and we worked in Softex offices with you guys when you were a team of six. So yeah, that's kind of how we, how we, how we got started. Cool. And, and do you think your background um, um, and the kinds of journey that you have gives you sort of maybe a different perspective on the deals that come across your desk versus other people in your investment committee? Yeah, I definitely do. I think I'm quite an odd fit in, in the investment side of things. Most of the guys are, you know, from have banking and, and pure finance backgrounds and, you know, they understand, uh, they understand the numbers extremely well. Um, I think coming from a management consulting background, I've got slightly a different take where I've seen large organizations operating very sluggishly uh, in outdated ways. You can kind of see how the human element of, of walking a business path for a long time lets you wander into massive inefficiency. And so my kind of slant on it was always, well, how is technology solving those big organizational problems that guys were paying consultants massive amounts of money to fix ineffectively very cool um yeah so i think to be able to see how tech can solve those problems is kind of an insight that maybe some guys don't have awesome um and when we look at uh, now you know you both got to show your own portfolio so i think that's that's great um maybe maybe because you want to just touch on uh, one of the companies that's probably uh, maybe maybe not necessarily the most successful but probably something very interesting or or some sort of investment structure that's quite exciting just so we can get a flavor for the kinds of stuff that that you're you're investing in and then yeah so i'll use two examples i think the the first one being real foods which is a hold co for um health food businesses and um, within that we own Kauai, new squin um uber nutrition high felt honey and brother b so some epic brands in there yeah there's uh, there are some epic brands in there and and all the way throughout, there's the common thread of health food um, in it. And it's been fascinating to be part of that journey. Um, it's a business that has scaled rapidly. Uh, you know, COVID has had an impact on the restaurant businesses, but watching the kind of other health businesses in that space actually be rocketed through this past year has been fascinating. Um, within there, we've got a rock star kind of CEO who is who's brilliant at what he does. He lives the brand, he, he is the brand, and he kind of, you know, in, takes on everything and is able to manage everything. Um, but then he also leans on us as non-executive directors and shareholders to help him, especially with the financial side of things as things go on. Um, so lots of work in, within that one. And that's something you're scaling almost venture style into different brands and the current growth in the current brands, uh, but it happens to be in the restaurant industry. Yeah, so that's why I think it's an interesting one is because you've got this platform of cash flow of brands that you're able to leverage off to start new instances. Cool. So we are currently looking to launch a kind of food subscription model, um, but that will be aligned to the Kauai brand um, and will be within the Kauai app into the, the, Kauai, the Kauai kind of email base and into 
some of the partnerships that Kawhi has been able to to work with, such as Discovery and Vodacom. So you've got a, you've got a very early stage company that's going to be launching into this huge kind of this huge consumer group already. Cool. And uh, what's another? You said two examples. What's that? Yeah. So the other one was obviously FinCheck, um, which myself and Mike, you know, have been involved with not this Mike, different Mike, mm-hmm. and been involved with from the very start. So you know, it's something from inception to where we are today. It's been a five five year journey, um, and it's definitely been one that's had ups downs. Um, but you know, it's been around for five years. In saying that, and it's probably the thing that I've learned the most out of um, being a bootstrap company. I think you generally kind of learn a lot in those kind of those kind of steps rather than being a company that's had a large investment up front or had a company that that has a kind of st- steady cash flow to to leverage off and and fincheck is um, i mean just high level what does it do and, and what's the investment thesis there so yeah Finch, fincheck is um, a, a company that's designed to enable better fintech ecosystems so all the way from you know onboarding, bringing clients into into lending and insurance platforms, all the way to onboarding them and also helping with the kind of risk management of those of those books. Um, it's been a journey of building those puzzle pieces together. Um, at one, at going forward, what we really want the business to be is the kind of um, is the rails for third party capital to enter into these ecosystems. So rather than going into a lender where you're ch- getting charged a fee. And you're getting some of your your return taken away. We think that you know insurance companies and pension funds are much better suited towards investing directly into into these certain loans. So yes, in a way, it is going back to my peer to peer model, but it's taking away the lessons that I learned last there. Yeah, and I think we uh, at Softech are very bullish on that thesis, and which is why we have invested behind uh, you and. Mike Byron as operators, and, and uh, we're very excited about what the company's going to be. We'll get back to co-investing in a little bit because I think there's a few shared uh, shared structures both here and in the industry. But um, Stan, maybe tell us a bit about maybe something a little bit more successful, an exit or uh, some early stage stuff that you're excited about and you want to share in the portfolio. Um, an exit, we, um, we've only done two in the on the growth platform growth side of things, which is our the tech side of our business. Um, so I can talk to those pretty quickly. Um, and before you start, I mean, two in only a couple of years is actually a very good going because normally you kind of maturity on these things is seven to 10 years. So yeah, that's, quite a, that's quite good going for a South African fund. It's, yeah. a, it's a double-edged sword for our business because I would say, you know, we're not traditional VC. We, we don't kind of do spray and pray. Well, not spray and pray, but, you know, we're not looking for like one out of a few. We really... A little bit more curated i suppose more of a pevc shop so we don't actually look to exit we're set up as a permanent capital vehicle so we can stay in businesses forever i guess our thesis there is we wouldn't want to sell out of a great business but you know every now and then um opportunities arise and it kind of makes sense um or sometimes you actually don't have an option so uh, for an example we invested into a business called touch sides um, really cool business um, led by Gary Kaplan and Dave Fraser um, out of Blue Label Telecom, so a very strong management team. Um, and they basically deployed uh, point-of-sale devices into stores where you could run loyalty programs, so collect data from consumers and run promotions very effectively monitoring your uh, marketing promotional spend. Um, they found a lot of success in the taverns, so uh, alcohol sales predominantly, 
and we're just really good at being able to move the needle on promotional spend. So for example, if Heineken ran a promotion, a two for one or whatever in the tavern, you could actually see on their system that Heineken would move from like number seven in beer sales up to number one. You could watch that happening in real time. It was incredible. Um, and so Heineken obviously really liked that and they uh, bought the business from us. And while we, we tried to stay involved, um, they were not that keen on that. So, so off we went. Um, but that was, a, yeah, that was a really good story. And, and, that's a, and that's a, I'm guessing, I mean, don't have to share numbers if you don't want to, but that's a sizable deal. And the multiples on that would make any fund uh, that you read about in the news uh, very, very happy. And, and that would probably be one of the best performing VC investments over the last few years. And yet, I'm pretty sure most people in tech, uh, unless they are close to it, don't know about it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, certainly we did well off of that in a short time. It was really nice, I guess, for Stu and I uh, in particular, you know, Rich and Sean have had a lot of success. But for Stu and I, it was kind of um, uh, on the tech side, it was, I suppose, vindication of a little bit of the thesis. The thesis um, and uh, yeah, I think it's a great story for South Africa because what happened there was you've got a South African team builds a great piece of technology huge amount of capital from offshore flows into the country. Subsequently, Heineken put a huge amount of money into that, employing hundreds of people to go and deploy more devices into the taverns. And that's a good, you know, it's, it was a good story for us, but it's actually a really good story for the country. For homegrown technology. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, again, an example of people building epic things here that might not make uh, the front page of the news. And I think that, I'm not saying that that's exactly what everyone should be doing is trying to get on the news, but I think there is something around Sharing these types of stories is definitely what needs to happen a lot more in the industry. And then, so that's an exit. What's something that you're excited about in the current portfolio? Sure. Now you're asking me to pick favorites out <laughs> of my kids. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'll give a, you know, we've, we've got a few in there and, and I don't want to single anyone out, but I will give a shout out just because they've had a hell of a time to Howler. Um, so and what does Hala do? So Hala, um, they sell tickets and, and do cashless payments at events and a whole host of other things, servicing events as an event technology platform. So if you've been and, to an um, event in South Africa probably in the last five years, you've bought a ticket of Hala or if you use their cashless payment system or you've... If you weren't buying tokens, you're probably using Hala. Yeah, okay. yeah exactly. Um, so, so yeah, really exciting business with two great entrepreneurs, Shai Evian and Steve Kuzin. And obviously during uh, COVID, they've had a hell of a rough time. Um, and, and, you know, I've had to cut back on staff, et cetera, and really cut back on costs. And the events industry has been smashed. But I think the reason why I'm singling them out is that I think in the post-COVID era, they've done just a huge amount of work to kind of shore up their own systems, to consolidate their business, to keep building on their tech. And they've won some really fantastic contracts in Europe. So they'll be looking to go offshore now as the UK opens up. And already they have sold tickets for an event um, in August in the UK. Fascinating. So that's a tech business that was a leading innovator that even due to COVID had to digitize themselves, which is such a, you know, you think anything that has to digitize, you think of a traditional legacy business. And here was a leading tech VC-backed company that also had to digitize to, to give up, which is amazing. Yeah, I think, you know, automation is going to become a theme that's increasingly important to survive in the new world. And I think when you have to, when you've got to cut back, you've got to get your systems right. You've got to try and uh, figure out how to, uh, you know, how to streamline as much as possible. And, and these guys, you know, just through pure human resilience, they're still going. And I, yeah, I like their story. I think it's going to be good. Very cool. Um, and and maybe just talking a bit about 
you know, all these portfolio companies. What's the co- kind of competitive landscape for the good businesses? Because is there, you know, too many good businesses to choose from? Or is there actually, are there few and far between? Um, Chris, what do you find is the competitive landscape and um, maybe getting into the deals and then, you know, what's the kind of upside to putting more than one investor in, in a deal? Yeah, so I think the ecosystem as a whole is actually relatively small, mm-hmm. uh, both on the investor side and also in the, in the opportunity side. Um, I guess in terms of the places we're looking at, um, it's relatively small. Um, and that's kind of led to a lot of collaboration um, throughout the industry. So you'll see lots of, lots of companies working together to, to kind of optimize their returns, their profile, etc. But you also... You also end up seeing lots of investors working together on certain transactions um, and also leveraging off one another um, to take to take businesses to the next level. So I guess um, on our side, we were very early stage investors in in Aggregate, which is a portfolio company for both of us. And what does Aggregate do just for everyone else? So Stanley, you might be better off to, to kind of explain where they are now, to be honest. <laughs> so um, Jez Aggregate 1 basically bridges the gap uh, not bridges the gap, but they provide a, a tool which allows the tracking of fruit from basically from farm to table. Um, and you will have heard farm to table, you know, digitally. that buzzword. Yeah, digitally. Yeah. So so they provide a tool um, where the farmer can load all of their fruits onto the platform and then distribute that to, you know, there's a lot of players in the industry. So you have your farmer, you have an export agent, you have an import agent, you have a retailer. Yes. and kind of everyone can use that tool to see exactly where the fruit is as it moves because obviously with fresh produce it's critical that it gets from a to b before it goes off and it's a big industry and they're solving a big problem right it's a massive industry um and one that can really benefit from improvement because you know food waste is a huge problem so these guys are just you know and it's a mammoth task to digitize this it's really difficult to get you know down to the fruit level how do you package cartons cartons and i can imagine the legacy in the industry and the the old school ways of operating and and it's also very global right a hundred percent so just think about tracking a piece of fruit from from south africa to a shop in china you know there's a lot of work that goes into that and these guys are kind of solving that problem very cool and and just uh, for the background there you know because you said you invested in 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 the early stages um stan you you explained the business you know, so you, you, you guys are partners on, on this deal. Yeah, so I think when we went into it, it was a very different underwrite. Um, you know, the underwrite that we had was um, Greg, the founder there, was trying to solve, solve the problem of logistics, getting, getting you know, fruit from, from South Africa into, into the stores. And we understood the disintermediation of the agents and essentially the monetization along that way. I think as the business has evolved, um, especially when these guys joined in, it has moved much more towards the... To the, towards the digitization of the whole supply chain, the whole supply chain ecosystem, um, and at that point in time, we we realized that you know we needed additional kind of hands on deck, um, especially in the more technic, technically orientated skill set. Um, so we went out to a few different investors in there, um, and and the you know chatted to all of them and you know presented the business. There was a lot of interest at the time in investing them. Um, and the founder felt that you know Pip were the best the best partners to go with for the next stage of his his journey. That's awesome, and and that's really cool. And I think that that's you know really a good insight into the fact that it's not you know VC is not also often just a one sort of check, right? There is a stage journey here, and 
different partners, different capital, different size checks at different stages is needed. And so, you know, might be competitive at stage A, it's series A, but, you know, very different, very different at series C, because also there's less and less investors that can kind of write those size checks as you get down the, down the stages. Yeah, for sure, Jez. I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of opportunities to be synergistic, as Chris says, because, you know, it's not a billion guys who are doing this. There's, you know, we, we co-invested with the same guys on a number of different deals, and it's super helpful to have, you know, you, you've got different skill sets at different places, and if you know that, like, you know, Chris has had a look at something and he thinks that it works and you do as well, it gives you also a little bit more kind of feel for the risk and uh, I suppose a little bit more confidence in what you're doing as well um, to have strong co-investors alongside. I suppose, sorry, maybe just a segue, but I'd, I'd ask to Chris because they're so early into Aggregate One, um, you know, that you're taking a lot of, I suppose, um, one, you like the business model, but it's not proven yet, and two, uh, a lot of emphasis on the management team, I suppose. So I'd just be keen to kind of hear your guys' thesis on if you're going into something that early, what are the major what are the major things you look for? And I think, you know, Agriad One's a nice example. So I think, yeah, Agriad One is a really nice example in that instance. And and for the business, obviously, strong management team coming on board. But, you know, beyond, you have to have more than just a strong management team. They have to be able to execute very quickly on certain things to, to take that business to the next level where it's going to be fundable by another investor. Um, and for us, it was a quick, a quick undertake that, you know, um, the founder, Greg, had very direct access to uh, a lot of volume that would make his platform work very quickly. Mm. So already plugged into the market. Mm. Yeah, already plugged into the market. It, was, it wasn't as though he would have to build a whole lead generation marketing team mm. to go and absolutely hit new things. This was a solution that had been within his mind for probably the past 10 years, had already been socialized with some of the role players in the, in the environments. And then on, on going into the transaction, he already had some commitment that volume would be going into, into his platform. So there was a very quick underwrite that this isn't going to be something that's gonna sit idle for a year or two where all you're doing is building technology. Right from the start, so there was gonna be volume moving through the process and you're gonna learn so much from getting that volume onto the platform. And that, that in turn has helped the business pivot a lot quicker than businesses that would have spent one or two years just building the technology to get there. I think it's such a great insight and I think that that's often the mistake with a lot of, you know, the question goes, how do I get venture capital, mm. right? What do I need? And, you know, the answers are, I get a business plan and X, Y, Z. But in actual fact, what you really need is you need a successful business. And, and the faster you can learn that, whether it's knowing the problem, the solution, the market or the team, um, you know, those are the hard parts. But people often play, you know, from our side, at least from software, people often come to us in spaces that they don't have an experience with. And that just takes a lot mm. longer to get to where they want to be. Mm. Let's look at the negative side of things. Um, you know, what happens if a business fails inside? What happens if a venture funded business? Because that's the risk, right? There is uh, there is high returns, but there's also risk. And obviously you don't want that to happen. But, you know, in, in sort of America or Silicon Valley, the idea is, oh, you know, this business is failing all the time nine out of ten are going to fail everyone gets used to it mm. but it's still not a nice process to go through for for investors for staff for credits all these kinds of things you know have you have you experienced it have you seen it um anyone want to maybe chat whether it's your portfolio or just you know kind of side along in the industry and and what would you say to investors or, or entrepreneurs that are looking and and what's the net downside 
Yeah, so we uh, we sadly have had one instance of this. Um, actually, in a business we were invested in in Finland, um, they were an IoT business, and um, I think, you know, just ref- reflecting, we probably didn't know the management team there as well as we as well as we should have, and it's a lesson we learned. You know, thankfully not on a massive check, but but we learned that you know we didn't know the CEO perhaps as well as we thought we did, and and um, things went bad very quickly. And, you know, all of a sudden you're making a decision whether to put more money in to kind of keep the business going so that it can achieve the vision that you bought into or or not and just let it die. And that, that's a very difficult decision. And I think the, the saying there is don't throw good money after bad. And it's a, you know, it's a very good saying because at some point, you know, the, the best investment you make is the one you don't. And so, yeah, in that instance, just to give you an example, obviously what happens is that your creditors outweigh the funds that you have available. The guys declare bankruptcy, um, and you know, in this case, it was in Finland. But so we received a lot of documents in Finnish, which were pretty difficult to <laughs> navigate. And there's another lesson there for operating in foreign territories. But um, basically, yeah, it gets you know the business gets put into administration, and the existing assets get sold. Uh, in this case, to the highest bidder. Um, and uh, you know, unless you've got incredibly strong value protection mechanisms, you're probably not going to see a cent back because you know the creditors rank ahead of you. And that's the risk you write to, right? That's the, uh, that's the risk you take. You know, I think we all understand there's risk in what we do. Um, we, we've got to do a good job of managing that risk as well as possible. In this case, you know, we didn't do a good job, and and kind of everyone loses, unfortunately. But you know, part he of- who dares wins, and and it's part of the territory. Okay. Chris? Um, I'm going to have to come back to a few questions. <laughs> I can take some learnings from you. Um, I, I think the the most poignant one for myself was within Lendico. Um, obviously, that didn't work out and you had to liquidate the, the business. Um, and it being my first job, receiving a phone call two days after Christmas from the guys in head office Germany saying, I'm not going to put on the accent here. Um, Chris, um, just by the way, please can you fly back to Joburg on the 2nd of, 2nd of January and go retrench the team? Um, that was that was a hardcore lesson to Hard, learn in yeah. your first mm, job. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's definitely something where you learn. You know, they, They're brutal about it and they, they made the decision quickly. Um, I guess I guess for myself, I've got a question, Sandy, is when, when you get to that point, what are you doing? I mean, what point... Do you stop running the business in this, in this usual kind of operating process when you stop, you know, taking out the lease for the laptop or, you know, when, when do those decisions start coming about? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we, weren't, we weren't heavily involved. These guys are based in Finland. So it's not, you know, with our, with our portfolio here, we spend a lot of time with the guys, you know, we chat to them often. I think there, another learning is that perhaps we weren't spending enough team time with the teams. We didn't have the relationship where they wanted us to be involved as much as our other guys do so you know we we received a lot of that communication via mail we were saying okay well we can't you know as you say take out the lease or we can't run a new uh, marketing uh, initiative or whatever just because we worried that we won't be able to make good on those debts um, and it was quite of a convoluted process where the ceo was fired and then uh, you know they had a consultant come in and run the show and and, and you know it was just a, a slow dwindling death but I don't really have a good answer as to when the when the lights go red, but you 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 feel it. You know, you can you. It's kind of a feel. You're like this is not going well. 
and, and and I think that it's very important as much as there's all the upside and all the, the kind of celebrations, there is, like we said, again, downside risk. And, and you know, it's just a case of, you know, can South Africa get better at handling this? Because often um, a lot of the operators and entrepreneurs, as much as they've got VC, you know, when they are taking out the lease, they're often sometimes guaranteeing it themselves, you know. And so they're taking the risk to try and grow fast. But if some things go badly, it might take a very long time before that entrepreneur can even have another go at, at something else. And, and, you know, it's like, oh, fail fast, fail often. And that's not the reality in South Africa as much as it is uh, in some other places. Yeah, I think you also, <clears throat> as, a, as an investor, have to try to build those frameworks for those entrepreneurs to get there. I mean, we've taken a very specific stance on not allowing any of our entrepreneurs to sign personal sureties on on significant leases or significant significant debts. And, and that's a huge value add, right? You go to the market with that proposition and suddenly people just think it's about the check size. But, you know, those kind of things suddenly become very important when you want to have three, three, three goes at the plate. Yeah, but I also think that, you know, you look at the common demographic of South African entrepreneurs, it's a 34-year-old person who probably hasn't been through those types of rodeos and they don't understand what it means to sign surety and then fail and everyone's very keen to take the risk but they're not necessarily looking towards what that's what that implication what the is for them is. at the end very interesting um going back to you touching on finland and and, and i think i want to why it's interesting is bring up because uh, you also have investments overseas right? yeah and so here's two south african you know venture capital investment funds and and Investing in businesses in South Africa, but also investing in businesses not in South Africa, and and you know how do you go about thinking about that? Why is that the you know the thesis? Is it is it purely you know the best business anywhere you can find it? Um, you know, and and maybe some of the difficulties about doing it um, in a different country because. Um. Yeah, so I think, you know, as South Africans, we are touched into a global, a global ecosystem. I think you've already touched on, you know, we're speaking about Remgro owning some of Grab, which is just about to list on the NASDAQ. And obviously, we all know what NASPAS has done with, with their investments there. So if we were to say that South Africans should only invest in South African companies, you probably wouldn't have the, that, those, bits those, of those successful stories. And so, you know, they, they have through their networks, you know, made those investments. Um, and in no way am I trying to say that we are going to be NASPA successful, because we definitely are not. But, you know, interesting opportunities do come from overseas, generally through a South African network or South African link of sorts. Um, it's, is, it tends to be a CEO that has, you know, migrated over there that is looking to launch something where they've found, you know, a unique South African solution generally that works within that, within that environment. Um, I have to also admit that it is a lot harder uh, making those investments in those places. Um, you don't understand when you tend to when you're going into them how much more expensive it is, mm. just in terms of one just the, the transaction, mm. the salaries, the legal fees, and all that type of stuff. Yeah, um, you know, in South Africa, you've got you've got great experts around the place that you're able to leverage off all the time. Whereas when you're going to the UK, that that network is just that little bit smaller. Yeah, I, I think to add what, from our personal perspective on this, so um, at the center of our thesis is good management teams. So how can we identify good management teams? Kind of people who, you know, I use this uh, analogy with Alex Forsyth, where we've just invested into Float. I said, What does Float do? So uh, Float's a kind of a, a new take on buy now, pay later, allowing kind of higher basket sizes using some some pretty smart technology in the background 
but so but it's a brand new business and he's a great operator right good track record. well that's the thing so i said you know if alex pivots and sells hot dogs instead of running float like he'll he'll make our money back just because he's he's got that kind of determination and will that he will succeed at whatever he does i think you know greg whitaker mike hank james patterson all these guys shy and them they've all got this where they're just like when it all costs you know no matter what happens there and you know running a startup and growing a business as you know is extremely difficult there's some pretty dark days you're on your own a lot so i think you know to have that kind of will is a is a major part of of what we look at and so the finished example is still a good one because we we didn't know the ceo well there um whereas the the south african entrepreneurs we know often from within our network or south africa is such a small place that you can easily ask a couple of guys and you know that six degrees of separation is probably three here where you can get a really good read on someone and their personality traits from asking around and that would be local or international well we so what we say is that it's a lot easier when it's when it's people you know as chris said it's like maybe a guy who's immigrated but you know who he is or you can ask you know it's one of richard came's biggest things is that he he'll when he looks at someone he asks you know, six guys he knows in the industry of, you know, what do you think of that guy? Do you think he's a good guy? And, you know, he bases a huge amount of his decision making on the people. And so our kind of stance on this is to say, let's invest in the people we know. And then if they're taking their businesses offshore, they're kind of using, you know, that trust and expertise to go and tap a bigger market. So, you know, Aerobotics is a good example. They started locally, but they've gone to the US, they, that's where they should be. Biggest market, go and, go and have a look at that. But we know those people very well. That gives us a lot of comfort in being offshore. I think aerobotics is a really interesting one. I mean, that's, um, I mean, you just, you know, what does it do? And uh, what was the latest investment round? Yeah, so, you know, aerobotics was the coolest kid on the block. I think they used um, machine learning and computer vision to analyze drone and satellite imagery on crops to give you a good state of health on the crops and now moving into really cool stuff where they can tell you, you know, how much fruit's on a tree because they have such uh, strong algorithms to do that. Um, and their latest, latest investment round, I mean, that is something that made the news. You know, I, I saw figures like 200 million rand from NASPERS. Um, obviously, there's a lot more capital going into there. But I mean, this is a sizable growth. But again, that's not a lot of dollars if they're in america yeah so i think that's a, that's a great point so your yeah, naspers uh, foundry and, and a couple of other guys have come in a, alongside us there um which is very exciting i mean naspers has got a great track record um and but yeah as you say it costs a lot of money to 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 keep people going in the us and rand's done going to dollars very well so while you know 200 250 dollars might look like a big number uh, sorry 250 million rand might look like a big number here you know, it doesn't go that far in the US and there's risk there. Big time, big time. Um, so I think uh, I think just to kind of close off, um, you know, I wanted to to try and, you know, Chris, you know, what's coming down the pipeline? What are you seeing more of? Uh, what are you excited about out there um, in the industry? And, and, and I suppose, you know, if you, um, what, what's some of the advice for the people that are kind of looking to raise is the next, the next thing? Um, yeah, so for us this year, it's very much about focusing on our current portfolio. Okay. Um, so, you know, we'd be absurd not to look at opportunities as they come by, but we're not actively out there kind of hunting right now, um, which we might we might regret down the line, but at the moment, our hands are, are very full. Um, so very much focusing on what we've got. 
Um, and I guess what what bit of advice would I have to someone someone trying to raise kind of seed capital? Yeah, seed to get started. Yes. Um, I'll only I can only give you advice from my mistakes, um, and that's that's raise big, raise hard, and and employ employ right. That would be what I say. Very cool. Thanks. Um, okay, so part one of the question, um, I think just based on the, the stuff that we've seen lately, I think there's some pretty interesting stuff happening in insurance and insure tech. I still, you know, the, we're still waiting for, for the big ones to emerge there. You know, I'm trying to think the last big players we've seen is kind of King Price emerge, you know, just with a, doing a fantastic job of, of becoming, you and know, a marketing a brand, agent yeah, yeah, so. and building a big brand. But I, I still think we're waiting to see like the killer tech blow in insurance. And we've, we've certainly seen a couple of really interesting companies come across our desk recently. And, um, and yeah, so I think that there's opportunities in insurance for sure. The, the crypto space, you know, you know, as you know, I've had a bit of a long journey with this where I became a bit deluded by it. And I think there were a lot of bad actors in the space. But certainly it's now coming, I think, through that Gartner hype cycle where we, we're at the bottom of that climb again. And I think um, people are taking it very seriously. They understand how blockchain can work properly rather than, you know, ridiculous ICOs. So I've started to kind of keep an eye out again in that space again. I think there's, um, there's more legitimate opportunities starting to arise there, which I think is really exciting. And I think obviously if you get it right and if there's it's any type of business. financial future, it's a big, there's big opportunities there. Yeah, so I think... Um, those are the two. I also think that you know, there's a lot of space in agri tech as well. Ugh, there's space everywhere. It's a exciting, but you, but you exciting keep talking about very tech, traditional you know. industry. You know, you're saying insurance, you're saying finance and banking, you're saying agriculture, and just sort of digitizing those are sometimes more exciting than than kind of going out and trying to build something brand or, or where. Or yeah, I suppose what's what's a new industry? You know, we're all digitizing old industries, but you know, if you look maybe at space exploration, even that's not new like it's yes. been around since the 60s so i think everything is is reinventing what we as humans have you know we have core needs and and those needs aren't aren't going away and we we need to service them and technology kind of addresses those needs in a new and exciting way to to keep evolving cool and and, and um, advice for people raising seed yeah so become I a vc is that a better, <laughs> No, I think there's nothing there's nothing more exciting that you could do than start your own business. I think, you know, the guys that do it, they never say they regret it. I haven't heard a single guy whether he's done well or he's failed say that he regretted the decision. So I think the important thing there is is to to ensure that you understand value. And so you've got to propose value to someone who's gonna put money behind you. What what is that value? How do you quantify it? So for for a seed stage business, you're saying you know, the, your real value there is that you've identified some problem that people are either solving poorly or not solving at all. And you've got to propose how you are well placed to solve it. Now, there's value there. Like, OK, there's a there's a problem. It's worth something to solve it. I'm well placed to solve it for X, Y and Z. You know, maybe it's just because I'm super tenacious. Maybe it's because I've got a great in in the citrus industry. You know, there, there's a, you've got to be able to communicate in a very clear and concise way the value that you're offering and and if you can do that in your pitch deck and your teaser keep it short keep it punchy keep it um yeah just communicate that value to someone they go cool well, i'll invest in you because i can see the value you're bringing okay. um yeah try not to be superficial so stand up the gates mm. all right guys well thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, chris ball michael sanard 
Guys, we're going to drop your emails if people want to reach out or anything like that. If you don't mind, um, you, if you had a lot to agree on, you've shared some really interesting insights. We might, uh, you know, we'd love to have you back and maybe put somebody uh, opposite you that's going to disagree with a lot of things you say and get some sparks flying. But I really just think, you know, keep doing what you're doing out there. It's really epic for the industry and it's really cool to see, uh, you know, guys investing in, in, in really, really cool South African global businesses. So thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you, Jess. You keep doing what you're doing. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> cool.